Hi, I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. So alongside my role as editor of CJR, I also am a co-founder of something called Covering Climate Now, which is a media collaborative aimed at producing more and better climate coverage from around the world. Um, One of the things that Covering Climate Now does is sponsor an annual journalism award aimed at highlighting work from around the world that does a great job of covering climate. I mention all this because today's episode features Nicholas Hawk. Nick is a reporter for Al Jazeera based in Dakar, Senegal, who was selected for more than 900 entries to be one of the winners of the Covering Climate Now 2022 Journalism Award. Nick's winning work focused on rising sea levels in Senegal that have not only destroyed a UNESCO-protected historical site, a community called San Luis, but have also forced 20,000 people into a forced migration towards safety. In the past, Nick has also reported on deadly droughts in southern Africa. But Nick isn't just a witness to climate crises. He's also affected by them personally. His family originally is from Bangladesh. They, his parents, had to leave there because of flooding. And that decision of theirs to abandon their home inflicted what Nick describes as a sort of trauma on their family. And that trauma has stayed with him as he's grown into an adult and as he has grown into a journalist and has, has influenced his decisions to cover the climate crisis now. Next week on Tuesday, October 25th, Nick and the other winners will be featured in a one-hour special on the PBS World Channel hosted by NBC News anchors Al Roker and Savannah Sellers. The special is called Burning Questions. I encourage all of you to watch. It brings people to the front lines of climate crises across the globe, including Senegal, where Nick is based. For today's conversation, I talked to Nick actually from the U.S., where he's visiting with his daughter. I talked to him virtually about his work and how he sees his role as a journalist covering the climate emergency. Well, um, I'm really happy to talk to you, and congrats on your um, award from covering Climate Now. Thank you. I'm curious how you see climate covered in the United States versus you know, the rest of the world, especially in Africa, where you, you're based. Um, have you been able to notice any like difference in the approach or difference in the framing? It's very different. So you guys in the U.S. spell it out. You talk about climate change and you make direct correlations. This is linked to this. I think in the context of developing world, in the developing world or in Africa, although we're talking about climate change, we can do an entire story without mentioning it. So for instance, I'll give you a concrete example. Like I've done so many stories on what's happening in the Sahel region. So the Sahel is, is, is just below the Sahara Desert and it's where Mali, Burkina Faso is. And it's an area where terrorist organizations such as ISIS and Al-Qaeda are gaining ground. The the leader of ISIS at the time said, you know, we're going to redeploy in Africa, our efforts into Africa. And so there, the story is, in the absence of the state and in areas where there's so much droughts, terrorist organizations are stepping up, taking control of wells and of the water. And in doing so, they control the land and they control the people. And so we we tell stories like this all the time, but we never spell out the link that it has to climate change or the role that climate change has in these stories. 
And is that because it's not necessary, because people are just living this experience? What do you account for the different approaches? In the Africa context, I think people are talking to each other, or they're trying to hold their governments to account. Or, you know, it's, it's more local communities looking at what's happening locally. And the link to the bigger picture, the link to climate change, is something that's more difficult to make in, in that context. You know, like I was in Liberia in this island called Providence Island, which is where the first freed slaves from the United States came and settled. And that island, it's flooding, it's disappearing. And with it, you're, you're kind of losing out all the archaeological sites, all, the, all these historical elements that are just around the island, which suggests that the island was much bigger before and it has shrunk. We did a story around that. And we met with the archaeologists. They don't make the link necessarily that this is the result of climate change. They just see this island shrinking. But, but it's interesting, the use of the word climate change in an American context and the use of the word climate change in an African context is completely different. So in the African context, sometimes what you have is that you have governments that are, have a terrible record on democracy or human rights, have a great record or try to put forward uh, a good record around the environment. So it's a way for them to hide what's happening in their country, to put a nice front to the rest of the world, to the international community. So you were um, recognized by Covering Climate Now for a piece that you wrote about rising sea level in a place called San Luis, which is a coastal community and uh, actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site in Senegal. There's something like 20,000 people have been forced to leave because of rising sea levels, which is an astonishing number and a number that you would think would have garnered a lot of global media attention. It's my, my sense is that it hadn't. Um, how did you decide to focus on that? And what have you made of the coverage in general of that tragedy? I mean, I've always been interested on people on the move. Why are people moving? Why are people leaving their homes? And it's a personal story to me, right? So I, I consider myself the son of a first-generation climate migrant. My parents are from Bangladesh. My mother left southern Bangladesh because the, the rivers overflowed, because the Himalayan mountains where these rivers find their source are melting. Add to that the cyclones hitting the Bay of Bengal. In fact, the creation of Bangladesh was the fallout of a hurricane, Hurricane Pola, who hit Bangladesh in 1970. So before the creation of Bangladesh, it was called East Pakistan. It was part of Pakistan. And it's because of that cyclone and the lack of effort that Pakistan put in trying to help people that people fought a war of independence. She left, she left as a child? Yeah, so she, 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 left, she left with her parents and they moved to the city and then um, met, my, met my father... And then they became scientists, yeah? They were professors in tropical medicine. Their career was centered around, around, I think, the fallout of climate change without spelling it out, right? So there are so many diseases that are coming out, specifically zoonotic diseases, so diseases that come from animals and that are jumping to humans. So did you really dive into your family connection here to climate once you started working this story? Or was this sort of baked into your upbringing from the time you were very, very young? Full disclosure, I think I became a journalist because of this. I mean, um, 
It was very rare to hear about Bangladesh on the news, but every time it was, it was about a natural disaster. So my parents would huddle up next to the BBC radio and we would listen in. And there was a sense of frustration every time the news report would end of like, oh, he hasn't said the, the full story. It's all about the disaster. It's not about the bigger picture. And I think I was a young reporter in London and I could have had an amazing career as a foreign correspondent out of London, going to big events and everything. And I remember my friends saying, this is career suicide. Why are you going to Bangladesh? And I went to Bangladesh to, to tell this story, to figure out where my parents were coming from, and also to try to understand the anxiety that lived inside my household, inside the household when I was growing up. This constant fear of what is to come, this looming storm. And I was trying to understand where does that come from? And I think it's a really important point to remember is that the inheritance of loss, when you have lost everything, memories, physical memories, pictures and the trees, the nature that you've, you've been raised or that generations have been raised upon, you lose a lot and you gain this sense of, of loss in your identity. You guys in the United States have this in your DNA. A lot of people that have come to the U.S., have fled droughts in Ireland or hunger in, in Southern Europe, in Italy. And we didn't call it climate change then, but it certainly was the fact that the climate didn't allow them to survive that led them to leave their homes and come to the, to, to the U.S. And that's also my story. So you were talking about your attraction to stories of people on the move. Um, which is this San Luis story. I mean, one of the things that was remarkable about that piece to me was, one, the fact that you did what especially a lot of parachuting reporters don't do, which is you spent a lot of time with people who live there and with their families. There was one very poignant moment in the piece so where somebody's talking to, I think, their, their son or younger relative and talking about the allure of, like, you really should consider leaving. And then the other thing that was remarkable was your... Um, impassioned sort of call to government to do something. You know, it's enough to report on this, but like somebody has to take action here. These people are really suffering, which we don't see a lot of, uh, frankly, uh, among reporters in the West. Um, did you hesitate at that part of it or was that just, it was natural? I think it's always difficult as journalists, you know, you want to stay impartial to a story, right? And we're always second guessing ourselves, and we always live in this doubt. Am I going too far here? But sometimes you need to step into the unknown and step into your fears to tell the story, right? And to address it in its full extent. And that's how I felt about, about the storytelling here. I mean, I thought what was interesting, as you pointed out, this conversation between a mother and a son, both having lost their homes, but it's the mother asking the younger one, her son, to make the dangerous journey. And that's, in many ways, a metaphor of what's happening right now. We are asking future generations to take up risks for things that are happening now. When we're talking about the planet, that means gen future generations, so your children will have to pay the price of what you're doing right now. And I wanted to hit that home in the story. 
Now, addressing the issues of government, it's important to do so because it's not an easy narrative. There's this easy narrative to talk about climate change. It's like, okay, governments are going to take responsibility for their action and therefore, and they're going to advocate things. But in, in the context of Africa, people have very little trust in their governments and, and, and they have to step up to the plate. We have to hold them accountable. Mentioning governments, I don't think I'm being impartial. Of course, I'm passionate about what's happening on the climate change front, but I think it's a full part of the story. You recorded, I think it was on YouTube video or something, talking about how you covered this story differently as somebody whose family is from Bangladesh, as opposed to, say, a white journalist from a Western country coming in and looking at the same set of facts. And I'm, you know, when, we, when we're talking about, like, who's affected by this change in climate, it tends to be marginalized community, it tends to be communities of color. I'm curious whether you think that that has contributed to the delay in a lot of Western news outlets devoting the kind of attention that they should to, the, to this story. Absolutely. I mean, yesterday we were in an event in Charleston, South Carolina, and this African-American woman came up to me at the end of the, of, of the event where we talked about climate change saying, you know, this has been going on for hundreds of years. And in fact, the flooded, the, the communities that were flooded first are where black communities live in Charleston. It's not until it affected white communities that it took a name, that it took the name of climate change. But before that, no one cared. And it's true that the most vulnerable are affected by it. But I want to just go back to what I said in that piece on YouTube. I'm not saying that if you're not a white, if you're a white journalist, that you don't, you can't report on certain things. I actually want to steer away from this notion. I think that it doesn't matter. This is the opportunity of this moment is that climate change will affect us regardless of color, creed, religion, or anything. It's, it's the great equalizer in some ways. But I, th I think that one issue when it comes to Africa, and it's very counterintuitive, I think that journalists that come from the West milk out this notion of empathy in their storytelling. So, oh, this poor woman is struggling. It's so sad. And for me, I, I don't want, I don't want this pity to come across in the storytelling. I want dignity to come across. There's enormous dignity that takes place in people that are suffering humanitarian um, catastrophe, um, storms, or even conflict and war. I've seen the most dignified, in fact, women or young girls take the lead in situation of conflict. They need to be celebrated in our storytelling. And we have so much to learn from people who have been living through this for generations. You make this point about instead of, as you say, sort of like focusing on empathy, just maybe focusing on like what, what, what we can learn. The thing with empathy, it's an amazing emotion. It draws people in, but it also drains people. Sometimes it drains you so much that it, it renders you in, unable to act you know, and we've had, we've seen this talking too much about COVID has had an effect as I think on as journalists, you know, we, we bombarded stories and it has this thing of creating fatigue and I can already sense in the newsrooms or in the editors I talk to this notion of climate fatigue, which is, oh no, we're not going to do another story about climate change. Oh no, we're not going to talk about mother nature again. But I think it's fundamental for us to address it in different ways. And another winner of this award uh, is Tony from the um, Courier and Post in Charleston, South Carolina, who I had a talk with. And what was amazing in his piece, I thought, was the use 
of humor. Humor, the great medicine, right? The absurdity of the situation sometimes. It's so enormous that we need to laugh about it, but we also need to address it, right? It, 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 we can draw people in in other ways than the empathy. So coming back to Western journalists that come to Africa, I think they sometimes they drain the empathy factor and forget to raise the dignity and also call upon the question the easy narrative, which is governments want money for climate change. But how are you going to use that money? Is that money going to trickle down to people? I mean, have you actually done that in the past? I mean, a lot of these governments are corrupt. Yeah, I mean, you point you and you pointed out that in Senegal, which is what you reported about, France and the World Bank raised forty million dollars for climate adaptation. Where did that money go? Exactly, and and just to add to that, um, so the chair of the African Union is currently the president of Senegal, President Macky Sall, and for the last year, in the run up to the COP27, he's been advocating what he calls climate justice. And climate justice for him is the right to extract fossil fuels off the coast of Senegal to ensure that his people have access to electricity. For him, that's climate justice. Climate justice in other contexts mean different things. When you think about justice, you think about victim, perpetrators, compensation. And I think we need to move away and redefine what climate justice means. And we need to agree. I mean, maybe the first step that people should do in COP27 as an icebreaker is probably to agree on what these terms actually mean. And we've seen a change of tone from rich countries, from the 2015 Paris Agreement, where they all agreed, you know, we're going to stop funding fossil fuel, to now realizing with the, the war in Ukraine and Russia, a lot of European countries will have challenges ahead in terms of keeping their population warm and turning up the heat. But now they're looking at Africa as a source of gas. So still, there still is this, this kind of colonial sense that rich countries come to these poor countries to ensure their energy needs. For instance, in Morocco, there's the biggest solar farm, but a lot of it will be exported. That energy will be exported to Europe. And there's such an irony in all of this, right? And so I think that's why we need to call governments to account as journalists. Well, um, is your what is your daughter's? Is this a topic that she's interested in? Yeah, I brought her with me, Mila, to see the other side of the narrative, the other side of the story. So when we're in Senegal, we see pollution, we see devastating. I have a beach house in in Popenguin, and just a beach down. All the houses are destroyed. Now, some say they're destroyed because someone built something and that changed the current. But, I mean, one construction cannot explain the devastation that's happening. There's also the pollution that we see on the ground, the bottles, the plastic bottles. Some of it isn't, some, a lot of it comes from, from within Senegal because people are not, you know, are not taking care of their trash. There's no system in place. But some of it is is currents bringing the, the trash from other places. I saw a red lobster wrapping whilst I was paddling out surfing, you know, and I'm like, where does that come from? Did someone bring a red lobster sandwich, <laughs> a lobster roll to Senegal on an airplane? Or is the ocean sending me a message? Nick, it's great to talk to you. 
Absolutely. It's great talking to you too.